we are going to talk a little bit about the interesting relationship between the value of things and time, which are very different. One is material, one's a little more esoteric, but they are intertwined. What you value today, you might not value tomorrow, and all that changes is time. What you value tomorrow, you might not value today, but is that a good thing or a bad thing? Some things, most things, depreciate. They are worth more right now than they ever will be. And it makes no sense. If you go and pay $6 for a tube of toothpaste, okay, and you use half of that tube of toothpaste, you go try to sell that half a tube of toothpaste to anybody. The rest of that toothpaste has zero value. It depreciates. Same thing as it was in the store, but nobody wants it. You buy a new car, you drive it off the lot, it's worth less. Why? I just drove it from there to there. A little time has passed. Everything depreciates. A few things do the opposite. They appreciate or grow in value. Oftentimes, real estate appreciates. Doesn't always work, be warned. But sometimes it does. But even that is mostly banked on the idea that when you buy real estate, you hope later someone will think it's worth more than you do. That's how it appreciates. The last few years it's worked doesn't always work. There is one way to beat this idea of changing values and determining what something is really worth, and that is called foreknowledge. If you have an understanding of what something will be worth, you will value it accordingly. Example, if there is a stock, and I am so far on thin ice right now because I'm talking about what I do not know, but I believe. If there is a stock that is selling for $20 now, but you know it'll be selling for $40 tomorrow, you would be well within logic to spend $40 for it. It's going to be worth it. If it's worth it then, it's worth now. If you had inside knowledge of what was gonna happen, if you fully understood the value of something at some point in the future, it would drastically affect what you would be willing to pay for it now. Those without foreknowledge will think it is crazy or wasteful, but if you value something in the future, you will value it now. If it's valuable then, it's valuable now. As we transition into this new year, having just finished the largest consumer event in history and Christmas, we are all thinking about value. National, re, was it National uh, Retailers Association said that this year, this year in Christmas, in the United States, we spent between 940 and 960 billion dollars on presents. Last year, it was about 875, and it was up 13 percent from the year before. And yet we're all looking at those piles of things and seeing the bills coming in and wondering, was that worth it? We're wondering about the value of those things days later, yet by next October, amnesia will set in and we'll do the same thing again. The expressed values of the world around us are terrible indicators of what is really worth anything. We get Christmas wrong every year. Fortunately, we've got another guide of worth that sees into the future and speaks back to us. So this morning, just for a little bit here, we're going to turn a blind eye to the world's values and we're going to look to the word and say, what really will have value? Now, I 
try and read the Bible cover to cover every year. It's just been something I've done the last number of years, which is great because by the time I get into the end of the year, I'm into Revelation, and you don't really appreciate Revelation without having read the whole book. You just don't. Let me encourage you, if, if you are one of these uh, folks who, um, you know, just kind of samples and that the Lord speaks to you, that's great. But also, within your reading time, find time to read through the entire arc of the story of God. Because when you get to the closing of that arc, it's moving when you see the lamb come and make everything right. It's like my heart leaps when I get to that point. One reason people struggle with the book of Revelation is they've got a hard time putting the events and the symbols and is that real, is that not real, is that, you know, was that a dream, was that, how does that all work? So this morning, let me give you really quick, and we're not going to cover all these sections, obviously, but really quick, four quick parts to Revelation. So as we talk about Revelation over the years, you'll know, okay, I know what part this fits in, okay? Part one is John's calling. The first, ver- uh, first chapter, he has this encounter on the island of Patmos, and he is told, write, therefore, the things you have seen and those that are and those that are to take place after this. So that's the very beginning, the first chapter, it's part one. Part two are the seven letters of Revelation, chapters two and three. We talked through these back in June and July. We taught, if you've missed that, you may want to go back in the archives. But we talked through the letters, or part two of Revelation, as he writes letters to the individual churches. Part three is Jesus receiving the scroll. That's chapters four and five. We're going to rest in that just a little bit today. And then the rest of the book, chapter six on, is Jesus enacting the battle plan to redeem all of earth. And it goes back and forth between chronological events and these parenthetical seasons where an angel is explaining to John what he saw, which is what makes that difficult reading. If you don't really know where the parenthetical sections break up, it it gets a little bit confusing. And I would say, probably over the course of 2023, we'll dive into that and, and we'll, but Today, put that all aside, we're just looking really at at part three. We're going to focus on Revelation 4 and 5, and really mostly on 5. But just to set the table, look at Revelation 4, very beginning. After this, I looked, and behold, the door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what may take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated upon the throne. So John finds himself, he's not on Patmos, he's not in Ephesus where he's done ministry, he's not back in Jerusalem, he finds himself in the throne room of God. And some of you are already going, how practical is this message going to be to me? You got John in the throne room, like how is is this going to apply to my life? This might be the most practical thing you hear. Okay, because all of you at some point will find yourself where John was. In Romans, Paul is writing to the Romans and he is criticizing their behavior towards one another, even towards unbelievers who persecute them, but especially between those who say they love the Lord. And as he's critiquing them and correcting them, he points out a date to come in their life and he says, this is why you gotta get this straight. This is why, like Lou said, You've got to extend forgiveness. That that idea, Father, forgive them, happening outside of context of an apology. Some of you are withholding forgiveness, waiting for the magic words, and secretly hoping they don't come so you don't have to forgive. 
But in this context, Paul writes to the Romans, chapter 14, verse 10, why do you pass judgment on a brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. He's like, he's like, I'm not even saying they're right or wrong. Them be right or wrong is not your problem. Your problem is you're going to stand where John is standing. So as strange as it sounds, John in some respects is just ahead of us, but we're getting there. If you read Revelation 20, it talks about us standing before this throne. And when he sees a throne, it ought to cause our chest to tighten a little bit. Because this just went from story time with John to a precursor to your life. You will stand before a throne. You might be at the top of your game career-wise. Everything's going well. 2023 is the year for you. You're excited. That's cute. You will stand before a throne. And what I just said about you will not matter jack squat. You may be overwhelmed with personal issues right now and under a great burden of pain, and the Lord sees that and he loves you, you will still stand before a throne. You might come this morning like open-hearted and empty-handed, and Lord, what do you have for me? He has for you the revelation that you will stand before a throne. There's no escaping this man on the throne, so it would seem that it would be of particular interest to us to know what's going on there. We're not going to focus on Revelation 4 this morning, but John describes the scene, and he describes a rainbow around a throne, 24 elders, flashings and peals of thunder, seven torches, a sea of glass like crystal, four living creatures with eyes on both sides, and every bit of this, you have to understand, is as astounding to John as it is to us. Like when we read it and we go, like I'm trying to make sense of this, John was there and having the same set of emotions we are. And he remarks about two activities that are going on around this throne. He describes these creatures that are saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And then he describes 24 elders who are casting their their crowns at the feet of Jesus. They're falling down. They're getting up again. And they are saying, worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So in this context, before the throne that you will all stand before, repeatedly they are declaring, he is worthy of it all. He's worthy of it all. You know why David Brimer has been able to convince so many people to sing that song? Because that song has been sung in heaven. And that's just the setting. We're not even to the activity that John describes yet, what he would call the action, which is what I want to focus on here really quickly. In Revelation 5, John sees what happens next, and it is the unfolding of God's plan that has been revealed in nugget form down through the ages, all through Scripture, God drops little nuggets of this plan. And you don't really see the whole path from one breadcrumb. In fact, some of the breadcrumbs look a little odd as they are dropped. He drops one in the book of Zechariah, 14.9. He drops this crumb about what will happen at the end of the age, and he says, the Lord will be king over all the earth. We love the sound of that. We have no grid for that. Like, that's... 
way we, we like it, our heart is drawn towards it. It's the draw of the Lord because we love the Lord will be the king over the, all the earth. What does that look like? I don't know. It is as foreign as saying the Lord will be the mayor of Overland Park. Why is that weird to us? But the king, Because we've heard the king of all the earth all our lives. What does that look like? For a spiritual being to take a political, physical role and lead both as fully man and fully God. That word from Zechariah, the Lord will be king over all the earth, has drawn people and puzzled them for thousands of years. What does that look like? And the mental gymnastics that theologians have come up with to imagine end-of-the-age scenarios under which he would be the king of all the earth, like there's a million of them because we can't get our head around it. We don't have a grid for a spiritual being, fully God, fully man, in a physical relationship with the earth. So when Zechariah says, the Lord will be the king of all the earth, we smile and we nod, but we don't get it. But we watch in Revelation 5 how he comes to that position. Revelation 5, 1 through 4. I saw, this is John speaking still, I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Put a pin in that for a second. Don't turn that into a chorus without understanding the anguish that the beings are crying out with. It's cute to us. No, we're troubled here. Who is worthy to open up this scroll, this plan that God has? It goes on to say, and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it, and I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. So John is moved to tears because he sees this plan, and even before the throne, he looks around and he sees angels and he sees elders, but he doesn't see anybody who can unwrap the scroll. He's aware of a problem. There is a scroll that contains pertinent information, and apparently a lot of it, because it says he wrote on the front and on the back. Jesus uses both sides of the paper. And I don't think the point is that it's conservation of paper. I think the point is there is a lot to be said here. And God has held on to this for all time, and John realizes that even the angels are puzzled. What do we do with this? How do we unwrap this? And who unwraps it? Because when you unwrap God's plan, you're accountable for it. Now you've got to do it. God has a master plan for redemption, not just of mankind, but for the earth. And it's all in this scroll. You look at the terrible shape the earth is in. Environmentally, the government, the culture, the structures we've built. It seems like at every turn there's failure and dismay and that's before we even get to our own personal lives and all of the redemption of that is in that scroll and John's looking around and saying, we've got the scroll and nobody can open it. We're so close, but nobody can open it. Yet Zechariah's prophecy hangs over all of us. The Lord will be the king over the earth. His kingdom will be full in the largest physical and spiritual rebuilding plan of all of history as he reigns over the earth for a thousand years, but he's yet to make it happen, and that's only part of what's in the scroll. 
God is intensely practical. He's extravagant, he's loving, but he's practical. And he realizes that the plan that he is offering here cannot be accomplished by any of these beings. The angels can't do it. The elders can't do it. And it's actually for their protection that he does not unravel the plan for them because they can't bear it. You know, there are things Kelsey asks me to do and there are things that she knows better than to ask me to do because I can't bear it. There's a grocery store she will send me to because I know where the stuff is. There is another store that she just won't send me to because I will come back with 19 bags of chips and nothing on her list, okay? And it is the kindness of my wife that she does not hand me that scroll and say, go to that store. Because you just don't lay something on somebody they're not capable of doing. There's this scroll in heaven and they're looking around and going, who do we... Who's going to pick up this? Who's going to open this? Everybody's so anxious. Everything they've ever wanted is in that scroll and nobody can open it. And the gap between the tasks in the scroll and those that are available to execute it is so vast that even the angels and John and the elders are devastated. It's like it's right there, but nobody dares to open it or break the seal. They're not worthy. Then John hears this voice. Voices play a huge role in Revelation. John remarks somewhere else that he hears a, a, a voice and he turns to hear the voice better. I, I love what you talked about, about hearing from the Lord. I, I think the year of 2023, we've got to focus on hearing the voice of the Lord. We spend a lot of time looking for what he is doing, and, and that's valuable. But get alone with God and say, will you speak to me? In this year, I want to hear your voice. Your voice doesn't just instruct me, it changes things. John hears this voice in Revelation 5, 5. It's not the voice of the Lord, but it's the voice of somebody who's a little further down the path than John is. And one of the elders said to him, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and the seven seals. Now, the analytical among you are going, who are the elders? We don't know. I'm sorry. I wish I had more for you. We really don't know. There are some that believe, because there's 24 of them, that is representative of the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. Even that's a little bit subjective. We don't know. They're not angels. They apparently were human beings at some point. But there are these elders, and he tells him three things. Because he's got insight. He's been around the throne longer than, than John has. John just got there. He tells him, weep no more. He's not correcting him. He is announcing that this new season is dawning. And to weep and mourn is not a sin when the time calls for it, but the time's coming to an end. Ecclesiastes calls it a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. And we have all encountered legitimate seasons of weeping where the only full, genuine, emotional response would be to weep. But there is a temptation among people who have profound grief to believe that grief is their new identity. I've seen this happen. I've seen people suffer profound loss. 
And they go into a season of grieving, and there's actually some strange comfort in allowing yourself to express the fullness of every bit of your emotion, and they never move beyond it. And there's a fine line there between allowing people to grieve, but realizing that grief is not your identity, surely not for eternity. And when the Lord begins to reveal his plan for the ages, the era of tears is over for those that have understanding. Some of you that just feel so far away from you right now. Like, how can I be excited for eternity? I live in a reality of now, and now is hard. But let me tell you, now is not long. Now is not long. If we were to, if we, you know, don't feel bad if we're not going to do it, but if we figured out who was the oldest in the room, and we asked them, was it quicker than you thought or slower than you thought, to a person, they say it would tell you it was quicker. Now is not long. And when the Lord begins to reveal his plan for the ages, he tells him, weep no more. Proverbs 30, verse 5 says, for his anger is for a moment, but his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Joy comes when you realize he's fully in control and this plan is about ready to be unveiled. Doesn't mean circumstances instantly get better. But there's an understanding he didn't have. Tells him, weep no more. Then he tells him, behold, the Lion of Judah has conquered. Now, if you haven't been tracking with this storyline, he's talking here about Jesus. This language goes way back to the beginning of the Bible. In Genesis, where the tribes of Israel are being blessed by their father, Jacob. And Jacob prophesies over his son, Judah, that he would be like a lion. And like those prophets that we talked about two weeks ago, sometimes those who revealed things in the early part of the Old Testament, they saw events, but they saw them stacked up and they didn't necessarily understand the timing of it. That was about Judah, but it was also about Jesus, who was from the tribe of Judah. Genesis 49.10 says, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. That was never Judah's story in his lifetime. It was the story of Jesus. If you apply that to Judah of the Old Testament, there's no way of seeing fulfillment. But God's plans are often spread across multiple generations. And eventually, the line of Judah produces leaders like David and Solomon and Jesus. What he is saying here is what was promised from the beginning of the book has come to pass now as we near the end. The lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. He didn't just conquer another man or another kingdom, but he conquered the great leveler of all mankind. He conquered death. So he's telling him, don't weep. The lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered death. And then he tells him, the best part if you've been staring at this scroll for a long time trying to figure out how we're going to get this open. He said he is worthy to open the scroll. He's the one that can do it. These elders, we don't know who they are. We don't know what they do. They give us some information. They throw their crowns down and they say, holy. These angels, they sing, but we don't, none of them can do it. But Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah who can open these scrolls. The thing that all of John and all of heaven seem concerned about is settled. Jesus was worthy to do what needed to be done. 
Some of you are in seasons of weeping right now. Maybe not on the surface, but internally because of what you know needs to happen in your life for things to be made right. You're not even thinking about the plan that God has for the earth. You're overwhelmed with the needs of your own life. Be encouraged with this. You don't need to fix everything. The lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered death and he is worthy to unfold God's plan for all eternity and he can start with you now. It is not a time for weeping. It is a time for recognizing who is worthy. And if he's worthy then, he's worthy now. Like, it's not like at the end of the age suddenly Jesus has great value. No, 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 no. If he's worthy then, he's worthy now. Revelation 5, 6, and 7 says, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes and those are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll. telling you. Imagine the elders, they're all leaning, they've been falling over for all eternity. They're leaning on the edge of their chairs. The angels are like with their wings, they're kind of like they're peeking. And he took from his right hand of him who was seated on the throne. With that title deed in his hand, Jesus prepares to do what no being in heaven or on earth is able to do, to open the scroll and reveal the plan of God and untangle the mess and to fix the place and make all of earth right. I want to ask if the worship team would come back. We want to spend a little time at the tail end here, worshiping the one who is worthy. Because if he's worthy then, he's worthy now. I was driving home the other night, ran across a podcast of these two guys, historians, who were talking about Jesus. They were non-believers, but they wanted to look objectively at the scriptures and at history and determine, was Jesus real and did everything happen the way he said he did? And I'm always interested in how those who are avowed and unbelievers talk about God. It's just, it's interesting to me. And after the first hour-long episode, they came to the brave decision that Jesus probably existed. Most influential man of all of history, and they, you know, they give him that benefit of the doubt. Maybe he existed. But as they looked at his virgin birth and all of the activities around the Christmas story, these two historians just could not find it in their hearts or in their heads to believe he was who he said that he was. Faithless experts will never find faith. That's just not how it works. One day, that podcast will be remembered by nobody. By nobody except by those who made it as they stand before the throne. And they will be in abject shame as they realized how wrong they were about the worth of this man. This Jesus, to who those people has become a punchline or a historical figure or a good teacher who repeatedly said things that seemed to be crazy, will be revealed to be the lion of the tribe of Judah who God trusts with the plan of all eternity. 
If God trusts him with his plan, do you think he is worthy to be trusted with yours? Stand with me for a moment. I want to read that latter portion of John of Revelation chapter 5. I want to read this and I want to go straight into just a little bit of worship and I want you to picture yourself before that throne. What are you saying? I would hope you are saying what those who have been around the throne have been saying for thousands of years. He's worthy. He's worthy. Just close your eyes and let the word worship wash over you for a moment as we go into worship. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from God for every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign in the earth. And then I looked and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders and the voices of the many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is within them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever. Let me read that one more time. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever. Worship him this Jesus. I exalt you, Jesus. 
value shifts you need to make, what are perspectives you need to change, the lamb who is worthy to open the scroll on that day is worthy to unravel the tangle of your life and make things right today. He can do it. You are not the most complicated being he has run across. 
and he is worthy to receive all glory and honor and power and your trust. So those of you who have held a little bit in reserve because you thought you could do more with it than he could, all of heaven laughs at you because they have all seen the worth of the lamb that was slain. Father, we trust you with our future. We trust you with 2023 from the beginning. We trust you and declare you to be worthy of it all. So in advance, we proactively give you this year. And we ask that you would have your way and that we would settle for no other. We love you, Jesus. You are worthy. Just tell them one more time. You are worthy, Jesus. You are worthy. You are worthy. You are worthy. In Jesus' name. Happy 2023. Don't waste a second of it. He is worthy. We also have a lot of donut holes, so grab some of those on the way out. God bless you. Have a great week.